Good morning and happy Father's Day. A shout out to dads and just a bit of encouragement. Kids notice, even if it takes years for them to be able to express it. I am one of those kids. I'm also a teacher and I notice the difference a dad's presence or lack of presence makes in a child's life. The foundation my dad built for me and continues to live out to this day is a solid stand on God's word. My dad has read the Bible through on a yearly basis for decades in various versions and in three different languages. If God says it, my dad believes it. That foundation has become an anchor in my own life for which I am and will be eternally grateful. This morning we continue with our series, Wherever You Go. The historical account we will look at this week simply carries on where Pastor Graham's message ended last week. Before we delve into it though, I just wanna begin by saying that I share this morning with a heavy heart there's a background noise that's shadowing an otherwise bright, sunshiny day. Decisions are being made by people I dearly love that are hurtful and heart-wrenching. I share this because maybe there are others of you whose hearts are also sad and you, like me, wonder, God, are you there? Do you care? Are you working? So, together, with maybe perhaps wounded hearts, Let's look to the anchor of our souls, the one who could sleep in a storm-tossed boat because he knew his father held him, his friends, and the storm whipping around them. Psalm 78 reminds us of the importance of history and the grounding that history provides for our present. In it, Asaph, a worship leader, says this in verses 2 and 7, I will teach you hidden lessons from our past. Stories we have heard and known, stories our ancestors handed down to us. So each generation should set its hope anew on God. Graham reminded us of some of those hidden lessons last week. The Israelites had for years been watching Yahweh provide water from rock, meat through droves of birds, victory through military battles. The current generation of Israelites who are about to enter the promised land whose parents had died in the wilderness, would have heard the stories of God's incredible working in Egypt, deliverance, covenant giving, provision. But like Pastor Graham reminded us last week, the Israelites, young and old, so easily lost their perspective. If we continue reading Psalm 78, we're told this, they stubbornly tested God in their hearts, demanding the foods they craved. They even spoke against God himself saying, God can't give us food in the wilderness. Yes, he can strike a rock so water gushes out, but he can't give his people bread and meat. For they did not believe God or trust him to care for them. But he commanded the skies to open. He opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna for them to eat. He gave them bread from heaven. They ate the food of angels. God gave them all they could hold. He released the east wind in the heavens and guided the south wind by his mighty power. He rained down meat as thick as dust, birds as plentiful as the sand on the seashore. He caused the birds to fall within their camp and all around their tents. The people ate their fill. He gave them what they craved. With this history as the backdrop, let's read about another pivotal moment in the Israelites' wilderness wanderings, an account that Jesus speaks to in the New Testament as well. Here's what happened as we read it in Numbers 21, 1-9. The Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that the Israelites were approaching on the road through Athram. So he attacked the Israelites and took some of them as prisoners. 
Then the people of Israel made this vow with the Lord. If you will hand these people over to us, we will completely destroy all their towns. The Lord heard the Israelites' request and gave them victory over the Canaanites. The Israelites completely destroyed them in their towns, and the place has been called Hormah ever since. Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? They complained, there is nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. Sounds a little familiar. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told them, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. The Israelites, as we've just read, had seen God give them a military victory over the Canaanites. As we keep being reminded, seeing God provide was not something new. And yet, as the Amplified Version explains, right after this, the people became impatient because of the challenges of the journey. Oh, how I see myself in their attitude. Impatient, grumbly, tired of the same old, no matter how good it is. Wondering how God's going to come through this time. It takes intention for me to remember how God has met me in my circumstances in the past. It takes intention to remember who God is as my Father, Creator, Provider, Savior. To sum it up, it takes intention to live in the shadow of the cross. This story, as I mentioned earlier, comes up in the New, Te in the New Testament when Nicodemus visits Jesus. Jesus says this to Nicodemus in John 3, 14 to 16. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. As the Israelites were bitten by these fiery, poisonous desert snakes, I too, and you, all of us, have been bitten by the poison of sin and the deceitful serpent of our soul. He's a liar, an accuser, a murderer. He disguises himself as an angel of light in order to steal, kill, and destroy. When speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus compared his crucifixion to that bronze snake in the wilderness. He said to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. That eternal life is not just for the future. That life begins here and now when we place our trust in him. The Israelites in the wilderness were faced with the deadly consequence of their choice to turn their gaze away from God. Yet he provided them a solution. That solution was to face the symbol of their death, the bronze snake, made by Moses and displayed on a pole. When they acknowledged their mess and accepted God's solution, they were healed. 
They had to make a choice to turn from self and their own efforts and turn towards God and his provision. The choice was theirs to make. The provision, God's. The bronze snake in the wilderness was a very real reminder to the Israelites of their failing, but God's provision. So too, when we look back to the cross, we see the ugliness of our sin. It's at the cross, Jesus says, turn your gaze away from self and towards me. Yes, your sin was great. Thus, the brutality of the cross on which I hung. Yes, your shame and guilt were real. Thus, my being forsaken. I bore your sin, shame, rejection, guilt. Recognize where you were, what you've done. But now go, walk in freedom. I took the ugliness of your sin to the cross and I left it there. There's an initial trust and a daily trust. There's that first choice we each must make to accept or reject Jesus Christ's death as the only payment and the full payment for the sin debt we each owe. That initial gaze of repentance begins a journey of living in the refuge and the shadow of a brutal cross that brings freedom and hope on a daily basis to our broken worlds. That's where the Israelites were to look, where Jesus told Nicodemus to look, and where he asks us to fix our gaze. Colossians 2.6 says this, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Just as we received, we are to live our gaze toward and firmly fixed on Jesus. What does it mean to fix our gaze on him? To live moment by moment in the refuge and shadow of the cross. It means there's no condemnation. Romans 8.1 says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In a very practical way, that means for me, when I hear the belittling and accusatory voices in my head, I tell them, and sometimes out loud, to go speak to my manager. He handles complaints on my behalf. If there's something that needs to change within me, he'll take charge of that. It means I intentionally choose where and on whom to focus. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. How do I do that practically? For me, weak as I am, it means it's imperative I begin my day with coffee and his words, not the world's or the media's messaging, but his. It means that I recognize that perseverance is a good thing that it's okay if life sometimes feels mundane and ordinary. He gets it. That's why he tells us to persevere. To live in the shadow and refuge of the cross means that when I realize I've failed, I run towards him, not away. Hebrews 4.16 invites us into that safe place, beckoning us. Let us then approach God's throne of grace, not timidly, 
but with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. To live in the refuge and shadow of the cross means my hope is not in another person or in the security of my job or in a government or its system, though these may be great gifts, but my hope is anchored in Christ. Hebrews 6.19 assures us, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. My ship might be shaken, my world uncertain, but my soul is secure. Practically, I may feel like the disciples, and sometimes I do, when Jesus was asleep in their boat in the storm. Like, don't you care about what's going on in my world? Do you see? Are you paying attention? Why are answers so slow in coming? To live in the refuge of the cross means I choose, as Jesus did, to rest in my Father's sovereign care in the midst of the storm. To live in the shadow and refuge of the cross means I enjoy a deep and intimate friendship with the one who knows me best. Psalm 139 assures me, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. To live in the refuge and the shadow of the cross means I find my purpose in my creator. Ephesians 1, 17 to 19 is a prayer that asks that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That's relationship. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we, might know, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us. That's purpose. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? His riches in us, his saints. That's belonging. And then what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? That's rest. To live in the refuge and shadow of the cross means I recognize my master and intentionally choose his voice and his way. Ignoring the sometimes subtle, sometimes roaring voice of the world and of my sinful nature. Romans 6 makes it clear that a battle wages within and swirls around. But we have intentional actions to take. Romans 6 words it like this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, Jesus Christ that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Not your eyes, not your tongue, not your feet, not your hands, not your ears, not your mind, but rather offer yourselves to God, every part as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Habits are formed when we intentionally choose over and over. The bronze snake 
on a pole in the wilderness, Christ on a brutal cross in our broken world. In the words of a devotional I recently read, the paradox of the cross is that it is a symbol of satanic condemnation while at the same time of heavenly salvation and grace for every day. Because of Christ's triumph over the serpent, Satan, through the cross, we can walk with purpose, for a purpose, for his purpose. Have a great week.